Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. This season, season two, is the stories of others, the stories of first responders who have gone through post-traumatic stress and who are now on a journey of post-traumatic growth. While this podcast should not replace standard medical mental health help or assistance, it is a platform for others to share what they had gone through in their journey. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. And thank you for being a part of the growth of this community. I hope you enjoy season two. Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. And today I am joined by Trina Tulk. Trina comes to us with over 13 years of RCMP experience. She understands and knows PTSD very well. Trina, I want to thank you for being in this space, joining me and talking about mental health for first responders. This has become an amazing platform and I couldn't be more happy to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Nathan. I, I'm so appreciative of you having me on here. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember how we first linked up and how we kind of uh, became connected. It was most likely Instagram, uh, I want to say, but you were very quick to reach out and you saw the value of this space of talking about mental health and PTSD. And for much of us, I think in that moment, uh, you have grown much in your PTSD. You're not the same person that you were in the past. And that's something that's absolutely amazing. That's what we want to try to aim for in this PTSD journey. But before we dive into where we are right now for yourself, uh, I'd love to hear kind of where you came from in your service life. What did life look like before you had PTSD? And then leading up to it, like, what were you doing? Yeah, so um, at 12 years old, I um, somehow had a desire to become a nursing P officer. And um, at age 18, I applied, I was deferred. And then um, with that deferral meant that I had to find some other passion. Um, so I you know, went down the route of the municipal enforcement uh, side of things by law enforcement. Uh, I went to college for that and was able to get a job in a couple of local municipalities here in Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, still had that desire to be an RCMP officer and I wanted to wear that red surge. So uh, through my journey, uh, I was in 2006, I decided to take another leap of faith and uh, apply again. Um, I needed to get laser eye surgery <laughs> to meet the requirements, but uh, so that worked and I did the aptitude test, got you know through all the process, and in December of 2006, I started this journey of becoming a Mountie. Yeah, so then it, 2006, 2007 is the, my time in depot, and it started from there. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about loosely was we're going to get into the PTSD and how that came from uh, your experiences with the Mounties and the general duty policing and that aspect of just experiencing mm -hmm. trauma. Uh, but can we focus on the bylaw component real quick? Because I think a lot of times people may not recognize that bylaw officers go through traumatic events as well. For sure. Yeah. The, the department that I worked with, um, you know, it's a, a local small town department. And we were basically partners with the fire department and uh, we would respond when they would respond. So basically, you know, any um, calls for service, like a fire call or a, a motor vehicle accident call, like we were there for traffic control, crowd control, that type of thing. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of traumatic experiences from that, like being on scene to these car crashes and and different traumas. Right. Did you recognize anything in the moment as far as the impact of the trauma that may have been uh, happening to you in that moment? Not in the moment. And that's the, the thing with, um, you know, some traumas is that, you know, you may, at, you may, well, I guess in that moment experience it, but it doesn't sink in, I guess, <laughs> until 
you know, uh, maybe weeks, months down the road, you know. And for me, I found that one one particular event that happened was a, a car collision that was a three-person fatality. And, um, you know, at the time, of course, I recognized that it was traumatic. Uh, but you, you do your thing, you, you go into, you know, automatic or um, you, you do what you need to do at the time. And then later on is when things start to come back in regards to like not being able to sleep and being irritable and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, so it's, you know, there's something that you, you recognize, but you can't put words to. The amount of training we receive, obviously, when you get into these environments, bylaw, policing, uh, the training actually is quite good. It prepares you to deal with these situations and to have that kind of that back reserve kind of mentality of, okay, in the moment, emotionally, I'm going through something, I'm very overwhelmed, but now my training is kicking into gear and I can still react and do things uh, in this kind of chaotic environment. And that is, while it's a good thing, there's also kind of a lack of uh, maybe talk or development into how do we also manage some of the hard things that we see. Uh, and I think training needs to evolve a little bit there. And I hope, hopefully it does over time. Um, Cause I know that you and I were in depot at the same time and I don't really remember them talking a whole lot about, you know, emotional intelligence or how do you, right. how do you deal with some of the things, the hard things that you're going to see? We were told how to physically go about, you know, managing a call and collecting the evidence and doing all these things, but the very real impact of the trauma, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on that. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they give you the basics of, like you say, evidence collecting, statement taking and stuff like that. But there was not any mention of emotional impact or, you know, how to deal with it after the fact. Yeah, so and it's interesting, too, because your trauma actually starts before becoming a police officer. So you get a taste of the world uh, before becoming a Mountie in 06, 07. Uh, And oddly enough, too, for the people that are listening, like you and I were actually at depot together at the same time. I think I was like a few weeks behind you. Uh, So it's kind of interesting now, you know, we're both retired. I left with 14, you left with 13. Uh, The fact that we connected through social media and we're both wanting to share our stories. I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the PTSD for you, like, can you paint a picture of kind of the person that you were before some of the, maybe the impacts of trauma were starting to be noticed uh, and kind of just highlight kind of the person you were before some of those changes happened? Um, I've always been an empathic person and I've always been um, what you would say a helper or someone that wanted to, uh, you know, be in that type of service. And, um, you know, like I say, from the age of 12, it was a desire that I had and, um, you know, it was something that never left me. So um, I was a quiet person. Um, some would say that I was shy growing up and it was, you know, kind of a surprise that I would go into such a, you know, a public occupation and something that, you know, it's, it's, uh, that bared a lot of responsibility. So, you know, before entering, uh, the RCMP, like I, I found that Trina as a person was that quiet, shy person. But then once I got the uniform on, I became that you know, authoritative persona type of thing. So, you know, um, then once I joined the RCMP and put that red surge on the first time at depot, it was like, oh my goodness, this is what I was meant to be. Yeah, super proud moment too. Um, I'm just thinking too along the lines of like you you touched on the empathy component, uh, very empathetic towards others. I'm I'm assuming you were very compassionate human being, very connected, um, otherwise extremely healthy going into the Mounties, correct? Yes, for sure. Yeah. So, and then early on, like I think most of your service you told me earlier was uh, in general duty. So we all know about the the stories that can happen uh, in general duty. What were some of the changes you first started to notice within yourself in regards to maybe the impact of trauma you were starting to now see it? 
I guess the biggest thing that stood out for me was the, uh, now that I've learned, it was the compassion fatigue. And, uh, you know, you're dealing with these traumas and dealing with people that are in dire situations, but you get to a point where you feel like, you know, am I really helping these people? And, um, you know, am I making a difference? So for me, it was like, I want to be in this job, but is the job for me? So that little bit of change in my mindset is like, you know, this has been my desire since I was 12 years old. Now, all of a sudden, it's it's having such a huge impact on me. What do I do with it? So it, uh, you know, I knew that I was going through, you know, I had the anger and uh, and I had, you know, the impatience and stuff like that, but I didn't know how to express it. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, I, I'm no, not sure. It, it does. It, <laughs> yeah, no, you are, you, you nailed, you nailed it. I mean, in PTSD, this journey really is about what does the journey look like for you, right? Like my journey into PTSD, while some can relate with certain aspects of it, doesn't mean that it necessarily meets their journey. The one right. resounding thing that I usually typically hear, um, from people is that it's that compassion that they first start to notice that starts to slide. They can't uh-huh. have as much empathy. And now maybe anger or irritability is something now that's becoming a little bit more of a prevalent uh, reaction now in your space, right? You might have been a little bit more cool and calm and collected, but now you're starting to find you snap a little bit more, right? Uh-huh. And you're snapping at home and you might be snapping at work. So. The canary in the coal mine uh, is very much there for you, and it's it takes us a long time. Like I'm, I'm guessing in those moments you didn't quite recognize to the depth of how much change was happening until much later. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right for sure. Uh, and I didn't uh, necessarily notice when they were getting really bad, um, but others did, and especially my husband at the time. Like he would mention to me, like. I'm not sure what's going on with you. Like you're not the same person and I want my wife back type of thing. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you go into uh, survival mode, right? Absolutely. It's fight or flight. Your world eventually becomes a constant state of fight or flight. If you stay in that pressure cooker for long enough. Now, when, when did you recognize, I guess, in your service, that you needed to go and get help? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, around 2011, um, I'm just going to go back a little bit. My traumas from the RCMP happened uh, very early in my service. It was 2008, 2009, and it was a combination of um, work-related trauma as well as some personal issues that I was going through. And uh, so in 2008, 2009, um, there were some major impacts to my life. And uh, in 2011 is when I was officially diagnosed uh, with post-traumatic stress. And um, yeah, so I mean, from the initial trauma, I guess, to the the official diagnosis was a couple of years. So in that couple of years, it was a lot of changes in me and a lot of, you know, trying to figure out what was going on. How did it feel when you were diagnosed? Bittersweet. It was, uh, you know, the validation of, okay, Trina, you experienced something that's, you know, affecting you. It's, there's nothing wrong with you. It's, it's a, you know, it's a reaction to something that was very traumatic. Um, yeah, but it was, it was bittersweet and it was definitely a relief to know that, okay, now I know what's going on. How do I fix it? Or what do I do next? Right? Yeah, that resonates with me. Absolutely. To the core. I know my experience too, with being diagnosed with it was I could finally face the demon I had been facing for for Mm -hmm. years, right? I knew something was going on, but I I couldn't put my finger on it. Uh, And most of us can't in the very beginning, right? It's a very subtle change. Uh, And then eventually, once you find out what that change means, uh, we're usually a little bit later to the party than we should be, we should probably Mm -hmm. be getting the help much earlier on. 
but uh, we do tend to wait and we tend to be a little bit slow at times on picking up on the cues, especially internally. Uh, like you said, others definitely recognize that you are struggling and were most likely pleading for help for you. Um, but was denial also a big part of the pre-diagnosis stage for you? It was very much so. Um, cause I mean, well, being a female in a male dominant workforce, you kind of want to, you know, prove yourself, but on the other side, like you, you need to look after yourself as well. Right. But I just wanted to go back. Like you were asking me about how, how did it come about that I went, you know, and seek or, you know, got my diagnosis. Um, I actually had a panic attack at work and I thought I was having a heart attack. And, um, so that was really the, the straw that broke the camel's back was that incident or that reaction to everything that I was going through. And uh, I had no choice but to address it <laughs> type of thing, you know. It was clearly a severe panic attack then for you. It was. And I, I can remember it to this day, like uh, at our detachments, like we have the, the, the bays that we bring our vehicles into. And I remember being out there just having a conversation with a coworker and I felt this overwhelming feeling and, and this tightness in my chest. And I'm like, uh, I think I'm having a heart attack. And, uh, you know, we decided to go for a drive to see, cause I, I became emotional and we decided to go for a drive and yeah, it just turned into a full bone, full blown, uh, crying, hyperventilating panic attack. So thank God for that coworker that he was able to, to get me, you know, into a, out into the vehicle and just to try to calm me down and just figure out what was going on. So. Wow. That must've been incredibly difficult, uncomfortable mm -hmm. too, to have to go through something like that in, in the workplace. I know I went through one as well and uh, I kind of tried to hide mine mm -hmm. and I ran to the bathroom and ended up getting sick. Um, but nonetheless, it, uh, it's a horrible feeling. It's a horrible sensation, but it's the way the body, it's, it's a moment for the body to finally tell you that you can't keep running from some of the things that you've seen or the trauma. Um, mm -hmm. What was the environment like for you that brought on the panic attack? Was there much going on in that moment? No, in that moment, actually, um, like I say, we were outside, we're just having a chat outside and, um, uh, uh, previous to that, like the, my partner at the time, uh, we had a really close connection and uh, we were basically a sounding board for each other. And he had um, taken some vacation and this, I think, was his first day back. And uh, this is what he was greeted with, me, <laughs> me having a meltdown and saying, you can never go on vacation again because I need you around to, you know, be my support and to, to hear me hear me out when I need, you know, to have a chat or whatever. But um, no, in, in the office itself, I mean, we, I was in a good position. I was enjoying the work that I was doing. Um, I was doing general duty, but it was in the rural section uh, at that detachment. So we were doing a lot of work outside of the, the city itself. Um, so yeah, I was, I was enjoying the work, but it was just, everything was catching up to me. I find it fascinating too, from, I hear this story from a lot of people, they end up going through a fairly severe panic attacks. And most times it happens when there's absolutely nothing going on, mm -hmm. right? You're safe. You're in a safe environment. You don't have a call to go to. Uh, you might be doing something that's very calm and relaxing. And then all of a sudden you have this reaction when there's no real external stimulus around. Mm -hmm. And now you're just all of a sudden in this full blown panic attack. Uh, so I don't totally understand that myself, but I do hear that a lot from people. Yeah. It's very interesting how, uh, how the body, you know, processes things, right? Like, like you said, you think you're in a calm environment and all of a sudden this is happening and so again, it makes you question like what, what's going on? Like what's wrong with me right now? I think it, I think it definitely highlights the, the impact that trauma has on us 
and it's so deep. And I don't know if it's when the body finally gets a situation where it can finally calm down and maybe come out of fight or flight. Cause I know even for myself, like I found I was more in control when I was in fight or flight because I knew how to respond and deal with that. Right. I kind of became sure. a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. Right. right. Do you agree? Absolutely. Right. So you kind of, yeah. you almost get stuck in this state of now you're used to being in fight and flight for so many, you know, years of your life that when you come out of it, the mm -hmm. body doesn't know how to handle that. I don't know if that's a thing or not, but it just seems like a lot of people experience that. Oh, and I agree for sure. And, and like you say, you, you kind of get used to that fight or flight and, you know, your body is operating on this high level of I guess adrenaline or whatever you want to call it. And then when you're, when you don't have anything going on and you're actually, you know, have to face internal, that's when everything seems to come out in a physical way. Yeah, absolutely. So when you, you obviously, when you started to really kind of dive into your PTSD, um, you didn't know much about it. You didn't know how to talk about it. You didn't know how to really recognize it. Can you explain to me how you kind of educated yourself on what PTSD and how to, how to talk about it for yourself? Uh, it was definitely a long journey and a process. Um, once I, I you know, had that panic attack and was recognized that I was going through stuff, um, I started therapy. I started seeing a psychologist, um, you know, going through the talk ter therapy type thing and, uh, you know, also into medications. And that's, you know, to try to get me to, um, to some kind of um, st stability. Um, you know, but once, once I started doing the talk therapy and realizing that it was a normal reaction to, to trauma, uh, that's when my curiosity started and uh, realizing that, you know, it wasn't something that was wrong with me. It was something that happened to me. And, uh, and then I guess my education or whatever started from that curiosity and wanting to feel better and wanting to, to heal. And by healing, again, going into the helper mode, you know, helping other people. It takes years. And that was the one thing I was even shocked about in my own journey was I remember being diagnosed and I thought, okay, perfect. I know what I'm dealing with. But that's when the hard work begins because now you have to start learning how to not only feel a panic attack or anxiety or depression, but you now have to understand how to talk about it. And it actually can become incredibly challenging when you haven't had that opportunity to really dive into, you know, how do you internally check in with the body to see where it's at, right? Where is your anxiety? Are you shaking? Do you have depression? Uh, and if you've been living with PTSD now for a while, you've become so disconnected from yourself to reestablish those connection points back to yourself in order to see where you're at can be quite challenging. Did right. you find that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, like, with the curiosity, like, I would try many different forms of therapy. Uh, the talk therapy was an avenue that I explored. I explored equine therapy, working with horses. Um, I even went into a residential treatment uh, to help with my PTSD and depression. And I think you, you mentioned yourself that uh, you went through, you know, being in a residential uh, treatment environment. And, you know, it, it's just finding that right modality that's, you know, going to help the, the pieces fit together type of thing. Um, Absolutely. And I think it's very important. And I, I mentioned to you at the beginning before we started a recording, like for me, it's just being true to yourself and just trusting your gut and knowing that, you know, this is something that you need to do for yourself and you need to explore whatever you can to get back to, to feeling like yourself again. It's and I totally agree with you. I know there was so many moments in my own journey where I looked at myself and I could see myself 
kind of trapped in this image of the police officer, but still struggling internally with some of the things that I had seen and been exposed to over the years. Mm -hmm. And even though like I was always very solid and had a great foundation of like, you know, who am I and what is my gut telling me? I really had to shut a lot of that off and try to fight through it at times. So for you, did you find too, like even in moments where you knew you should have been recognizing, you know, trust your gut or stay too true to who you are, did you fight that at any point? Um, I did um, because I didn't trust my gut, right? Because it was just, you know, experiencing all these things. And I'm like, well, this is a path that I wanted to take. This is a, a passion that I had since I was 12 years old. And why am I experiencing this when there's something that I've wanted all, you know, all this time? So I didn't trust my gut. I'm like, you know, it, it, was, it was a conflict, an internal conflict. Absolutely. And I found something very similar, even in my own, my own experience too, where I had wanted this for so long and I'd worked so hard to become a Mountie and I'd given up so much in my own life. Cause I mean, even the sacrifices before coming, before becoming a first responder mm -hmm. are quite significant, right? Like I had to move provinces. Uh, I shut down a lot of relationships um, and I moved on and I tried to, you know, engage with this career where the learning curve is steep. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. The first three years is just, it's an unreal ride of learning. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you almost become lost too in the profession. It's not to say that the profession's a bad profession. It's just, you mm -hmm. need to really kind of have awareness into what you're getting involved with and what the cost of this all is to you. Because uh, I think at the end of our, our day, when we have our service life, whether you have five, 10, 15, 20 years uh, and beyond that, there's a cost to all of it. Absolutely. For sure. So for you, you're, you're, you're learning now about PTSD. You're talking about it. You're doing the group therapy. You're doing the, uh, the horse retreats. You did the residential treatment. And I, I will, I'm the biggest um, fan of people that go away to residential treatments. I think a lot of times there's a stigma behind residential treatments. The mind all like kind of automatically kicks into, oh, there must be an addiction issue or something in order to go right. to a rehab facility. But for us, the little, you know, the secret for us is actually there's a, a trauma only based program in a lot of these facilities and they're designed specifically for us. We can go away and we can deal with the trauma, whether there's addiction or not. The addiction really doesn't matter. The real issue is the PTSD. Yes. So how, how was your experience in, um, in, in that, uh, that's, that's, uh, rehab, I guess I'll just call it rehab. Uh, what did you learn about yourself? Um, it was, it was, a, a great experience for what it was. Um, I learned that, you know, again, there was nothing wrong with me. I was having a very human response to, to trauma and, um, you know, in, in the residential treatment center that I went to, uh, it wasn't just for first responders, it was for uh, everyone. And, uh, you know, to walk in there and realize that, you know, trauma affects a human being, right? It's not your job. It's not, you know, it's a human response. So for me, it was very eye-opening. It was very educational. It was um, just a relief to realize that, you know, it it is something, it's an injury and it's something that needs to be treated as such. There were so many moments in my own journey too, where like I held the shame and the guilt of what's wrong with me. And when mm -hmm. I finally went to rehab and I saw that there were so many other people there that were all experiencing the same thing as me, I finally took a deep breath and realized I wasn't alone. I really wasn't alone. And I had heard that saying so many times before addressing, like actually going to rehab, uh, that, hey, Nate, you're not alone in this, right? And it, it was wonderful. It's, it's a great saying that a lot of us cops say that, you know, to others yeah. to try and show support. But you can hear it. But when you finally feel it and you see it in action where people are finally saying, this is what my PTSD looks like to me, you can learn from them, you can connect with them, and you can start to heal. Absolutely. And I think the is that biggest what, thing is that what you found as well? Absolutely. And the biggest thing is the you didn't have to say anything. 
Like you would just have to look at someone or, you know, just see the look on their face and go, I get it. I feel it. Like, it's just that uh, it's, it's indescribable the connection that you have with someone that has been through a traumatic experience and, um, you know, that, that human connection, right. Uh, I just found it amazing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful for my journey. I wouldn't change anything. It's made me who I am. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for where I am right now. Um, you know, a few years ago, I wouldn't say that, but that's part of the, the post-traumatic growth, right? And, you know, I, I take a lot of credit uh, for doing the work, right? And having the, the um, availability to me to be able to, to get the, the help that I needed, you know, it's, it means a lot. I will always say to anybody that gets to that place where they can finally see that their PTSD is actually a beneficial thing. Uh, congratulations to you for, you know, putting the hard work into the journey, but also I'm extremely proud of you for the person that you have become, despite the challenges that you've faced as a result of your policing career. Uh, it's an incredibly difficult journey. I've walked it. So yeah, yeah. thank you, Trina, so, so much. Now, when you were there, um, did you guys talk about childhood trauma? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, basically I think with these programs, you have to go to the root, you have to go back to the beginning and, uh, you know, um, to see where, what your perspectives, where your perspectives came from and what your experiences were that led you to, I guess, the, to have the reactions, uh, that you have experiencing a trauma. And um, that was a, definitely eye-opening for me as well, because uh, as a child, I was bullied, and I never realized that that's a trauma. And when the counselor said to me, you know, that was your first experience of trauma, I, I, I it was mind-blowing, uh, but it, it made things make sense. Um, so yeah, it was very interesting. And that, that for me too kind of rocked my world when I walked into rehab and I thought, okay, perfect. Let's deal with my policing trauma. And my therapist in the moment said, hey, you know what? Your policing trauma is like the tip of the iceberg above water. The real yeah. piece that we need to deal with is that childhood trauma, that that subconscious part that's underneath the water. And I, I fought it too for the longest time. I was like, no, the childhood trauma is not a thing. My childhood was fine. <laughs> like this isn't real. I know we, we just go into, I don't want to say denial, but I just, I guess you just don't realize, you know, the impact that certain things have on you and, and, you know, you're experiencing it from a child point of view. But then when you look back, you're like, oh yeah, that was significant, right? Like that was something that shouldn't have happened or would have had an impact on a child, you know? Absolutely. Like even as I reflected on my own, my own story, uh, my story shifted from everything was fine to breaking down into a, a chair and falling apart because I was literally sad and fearful as I thought of like the first traumatic event that I had ever been a part of as a child, something that really had impacted me. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, this is the root. This is the tip of the root. And this is how I kind of perceived the world from that moment on was, you know, I would encounter the sadness or the fear in certain situations that reminded me of that very first situation as a child. And that's how deeply rooted this stuff is. So mm. you fast forward into, you know, years later as a Mountie, when you're dealing with some really heavy, intense things, and you get these same feelings of sadness or fear, for example, uh, and all of a sudden we don't like that. So what do we do? We cover it up with anger so that we can control the situation so that we can, you know, revert back to our training or shut our emotions down. And that's where some of the PTSD really becomes an issue. Was anger ever um, an issue for you? Before or <laughs> after the traumas? <laughs> well, I guess, I guess you would probably know best as to you know, was there ever a point where you looked at yourself and said, I'm, I'm concerned about my anger? Um, reactivity or like, um, not anger as such, but like quick, quick to, to react to things was something that I noticed very much about me um, to the point where, you know, if something happened in the office that upset me, like I would throw something. 
and that wasn't me like I was I never considered myself an angry person or like a violent person or someone that you know would do anything physically but when things you know were, were coming really coming to a head I found that I would react really quickly and it was a physical outburst type of thing so yeah that was something that I definitely recognized yeah, and it can be something as simple as that, right? Like it doesn't have to be you smashing through walls or taking a sledgehammer to, you know, a window or whatever the case is, but it's definitely something that you reflect on and you go, okay, this is how I'm spiraling out of control and I may be using anger because I think for a, a lot of us, I think anger actually becomes almost like a tool. A tool, I'm sorry? Yeah, a tool for us to use in those moments where we were struggling, right, in PTSD or uh, we're at the hard calls, right, and we cover everything up with anger. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like you kind of experienced that to a degree. Um, but yeah, is there, so am I missing a part there? Is there something else that you may have used to try and cope in those moments or was anger not as prevalent for you? Um. No, I, I'm like I say, I mean, I think it's it. Well, obviously, the reactivity would be anger based because it was something that upset me. And this is how I was reacting to it. And I guess from, you know, the reaction and stuff it was basically a way to. That people would avoid me. And so, uh, you know, it was an avoidance tech, technique that, OK, if I react this way, then, you know, I'm not going to have to deal with it. and I'm not going to have to deal with people type of thing. Um, if that makes sense, like it was a, you know, it, I, was, I was again in survival mode or protection mode and I was just, you know, I'm going to react this way and that way, you know, I'm not going to have to deal with it. Yeah. And it, it's a part of the social isolation that starts to happen too with post-traumatic stress. We eventually start to push everybody away, right? Through our yeah. own painful experiences. Um, for you now, I think in your journey, something that was kind of important, an important stage for you is you also said that you, you at one point played the victim role, which I think is also very common. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I, uh, I think I mentioned earlier on, like I was looking for that validation or that, you know, um, wanting other people to recognize what I couldn't recognize myself. And I felt like, you know, going into that mode of, okay, you know, something happened to me, like, look at me, something happened to me, help me, fix me type of thing. And, um, you know, in that mode, it was like, basically, a way of asking for help without actually verbalizing that I needed help, right? It was, you know, um, yeah, just wanting someone, I, I guess, to rescue me because I didn't know how to help myself. Absolutely. Like, you know, I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, Was it hard for you to ask for help? Very much so. Very much so. So you recognized in those moments you needed help, but you were unable to ask for it. Absolutely. Um, And I, I think we mentioned before, like, even when I had the, the panic attack at work and my coworker was like, okay, there's something going on. We need to help. We need to get you some help or whatever. I'm like, no, 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 uh, I'm good. Uh, I'll suck it up. I'll, I'll be okay. Just, just give me a minute to collect myself. And, you know, so it was absolutely, a, you know, something that I didn't want to have to deal with it, I guess. I just, I, I just didn't want to face it. Well, and something you talked about earlier too, obviously being a female in a very male dominant uh, environment, there has to be a ton of fear behind saying, hey, I'm going through something very hard and I'm Mm -hmm. struggling. Very much. I know know fear was definitely a part of my journey too. I mean, I didn't want to reach out for help because of fear. How is this going to be viewed? You and I went through service basically at the same time. Like even in 20, I was diagnosed in 2014. You were diagnosed in 2011. There Uh was not much conversation around PTSD even then. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. And I mean, when, when we're in training and we mentioned that as well before, when we're in training, like we're taught that, you know, we're the ones that are supposed to be in control. We're the ones that are the ones that are running in when everyone else is running away. So when you get to that point where you're like, okay, I want to run away. 
like how do you you know come to um you know reconcile with that you've almost become so numb in your own journey that you don't really know when to stop running into the fire mhm Like everything is so abnormal, nothing makes sense anymore. So you just continue to push through it, thinking that everything will be okay and that this is just normal, that, you know, this pain that you're carrying, the trauma, however the body is in those moments, uh, just some, it's just a part of the job. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned before, like the adrenaline rush, like you become comfortable in that high level of stress, right? You do. Yeah, you really do. Yeah. yeah. And this world, I, I mean, this world is so fascinating for me because you take, you know, such incredible individuals who want to serve their country and they go through some of the hardest things in life. So for you now, you, you were able to get through the victim phase mm-hmm. and you were able to actually get help. What was yep. the next stage for you post victim stage? Um, the getting help part, like I, I searched for different ways of, of figuring out myself and, and getting the help that I felt, um, you know, was, was a good fit for me. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, once I got, you know, the different, I'm sorry, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought. No, totally okay. I think you were just talking about the, um, like getting help. Like you obviously, there was a victim stage where you were trying to ask for help, didn't know how, we're playing a victim card a little bit. And there's no shame in that because that's also a very normal process in this journey. You then were able to get the help. Um, I'll help you along here because again, PTSD for us can be very challenging to keep our our mind on one train of thought, one track. But I guess in getting the help, you also probably at some point started to recognize that you need to accept some of the stuff that you're going through. Mm -hmm. So in your healing journey, when you get the help, what did your, what did your acceptance now look like of not being able to, or at least telling yourself now that, okay, I can't play the victim anymore. I have to start challenging myself and start accepting some of these things that I have to work at. What did that look like? Um, well, like you say, the acceptance part is like realizing that, you know, it's an injury. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not a reflection of me as a person. It's something that I experienced and, um, getting that help was, you know, no different than if I had a broken leg or if I had a broken arm, like it was something that, you know, I needed and there was no shame in it. So, you know, I went from saying, okay why is this happening to me is like, well, what is this trying to teach me? And, you know, going from down that route type of thing and, and understanding that, you know, there's a saying that, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears and, you know, I didn't go through all of this. You didn't go through your journey for nothing. It was, you know, to get us to, to this next phase of our lives and to realize that, you know, it's, um, it's part of our journey. Right. Absolutely. I, and it's weird to say this, but I'm actually grateful for having had a mental health crisis and getting the help that I needed because it's taught me so much about mental health. Uh, and you too as well, right? I can totally tell. Now mm-hmm. for you, as you started to understand the PTSD and gain kind of that radical acceptance into, okay, this is now a part of my world. What led you to the point now where you now recognize that it's time to end the journey with the Mounties? It, um, I guess it was a gut feeling to realize that, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't giving uh, my best to myself or the workplace. And it was, um, we're going to have to do this again some other time, Nathan. I'm sorry. I'm all over the place here. No, that's okay. Um, and this is just kind of what happens. So we can, we can either stop here. Or we can, uh, or we can shift into a different topic. It's totally up to you. Are you yeah, overwhelmed I'm, right now? I'm struggling right now. 
That's okay. Take a deep breath. Yeah. This totally, ha this happens more often than, uh, than you would realize. Take a deep breath. We can just hang out here in the space right now. We don't have to go further. Just breathe. One of the things that was the biggest lesson of going through all of, of this journey is the fear of failure. Yeah. And, you know, you asked me how I decided, you know, it was time to end my career. It was, it was such a difficult decision for me because I didn't want to fail. But in saying that, I knew it was the right decision to leave because when you feel like you've given your all and you have nothing left, you have to make that decision, right? Again, going back to you have to be true to you. Um, you know, wearing that red surge meant everything to me. Like I dreamt of it since I was 12 years old and I did it and it can't be taken from me. And that's something that I think is very important for all of us to realize, like once you achieve something, it can't be taken from you. And even though, you know, my career ended prematurely, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, it, it happened. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful for the experience. I'm forever grateful that I was able to fulfill that, you know, that passion and that goal that I set for me at such a young age. Right. I couldn't agree more. I know <clears throat> even for myself, it took so many years to get to a point where I finally felt comfortable to navigate through the fear to finally say I'm done. I can't go any further. It's not healthy for me to go further. And I need to start actually practicing this thing called self-worth. Mm-hmm. Right, because a large part of the process too, when when you become sick, is there there's organizational needs, and that's fine. The employer has every right to try and get you back to work as as quickly as you can. But eventually, for some of us, we eventually get to a point where we now recognize that it's done, and mm -hmm. we can't go any further. And I had that experience very similar to yourself as well, Trina. So I very much get that. And it's one of the hardest things you, you will do because you give up on this dream. Mm -hmm. You encounter loss. You encounter the pain behind the loss. And you have to somehow find the gratitude in that space to honor your service and to leave the Mounties with at least enough grace so that you can go on to continue to flourish in life. Cause that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is to make sure that you can go on and you can lead the healthiest version of your life possible. And so many men and women struggle with this last step is recognizing how deep the PTSD goes when it's time to throw in the towel and how do you do it? A lot of people go through that very challenging step, the loss, the fear, uh, the loss of identity. Who am I now, right? Post-career, what kind of skills do I have? What are the lies you're telling yourself about your, you know, the glass ceiling above you? Because you have, it, we, each, each one of us have so much to offer, right? We were hired as literally Canada's finest to fill that role of the Red Surge, and we were so proud. And then we go through a bunch of unfortunate events that eventually can, for some of us, take us out. And there's no shame in that. Mm -hmm. But what does life look like after that? So for you, we just saw the very real emotion behind having to walk through that last door, which is incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard, but incredibly profound. And I want to say that is amazing that you were able to do that for yourself because that was probably the first time for you where you actually set up a boundary, set up, you know, a vision of self-worth for yourself and said, okay, this no longer is keeping me healthy. I need to take a stand. Mm -hmm. So did you feel too at the same time, like there might be something that you could be proud of in that moment or there was something to celebrate as well when you finally made the decision to leave? I think when I finally made the decision to leave, it was, yeah, when I, I feel, felt like I was in the driver's seat again. 
and um, you know it it's I, I was taking back my power because you know all up until the until I made that decision I was like no you know I want to do this I want to keep going you know even when all the signs were there and I recognized all the signs I'm like no I don't want to give up I'm not a quitter I want to keep going but when I made a decision okay you know it's not something to be ashamed of it's something that you know I've, I've done the career you know it's it can't be taken from me now it's time to move on to the next the next phase in life and uh yeah I, I felt like i took back my power and that is incredibly an amazing moment i too experienced that as well trina and something that is very very profound uh, i have immense respect for the mounties and i'm grateful for the journey that they allowed me to join them on but when you can regain that control and that power or at least look at yourself in a different perspective and say no i'm worth it my health is worth it i'm walking away now to go and do something different to look after myself it's an incredibly profound and moving moment for us uh, in our service life so while there is a lot of fear to step forward and leave the mounties and it's something we will eventually have to do unless you die as a mountie <laughs> we all have to leave right it's a very normal process of of employment you eventually will have to leave um it's something that you should also try and see the benefit of it too right for some of mm -hmm. us this is what our story looks like mm -hmm. so it's amazing it's amazing for you that you could still see some of those good things that were in place despite the very real pain behind having to acknowledge that, you know, this chapter was now coming to a close. What kind of strides have you made post retirement in your post-traumatic growth? What has your recovery looked like now that you've been away from the job? Um, I'm coming up on two years since I retired and um, it's crazy how time flies. Um, but I've done a lot of, again, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of, of reading and continuing with the therapy and uh, continuing with, you know, reaching out to other people and, you know, uh, learning from others and, and, you know, passing on the things that I've learned. And it's, it's the journey is, is ongoing. I mean, life is a journey. And I'm at the phase where Again, I feel like I'm in the post-traumatic growth phase. I'm still learning. I'm still, you know, dealing with with the side effects, I guess, of, of the trauma because the memory, the attention and all that stuff is still a huge thing that I, I you know, struggle with. But I, I've learned that I can challenge myself again and that I'm not the, you know, the broken person that I thought I was. I'm just someone that you know, at an injury, I needed time to recover. I'm still in recovery mode, but I can, you know, I'm, I'm not finished yet. I still have a lot more to do and a lot more to achieve, uh, because of, of everything that happened. The gifts that you will give this world as you continue to recover are going to just grow and grow and grow. I'm a firm believer in that. Some of the people that I see in this space become such amazing individuals and they do such amazing things for society. They give back in new ways, right? And I see you as being that very person. Uh, and I have to agree, even in my own journey, like my, my recovery has grown exponentially because I'm now on the outside, still very much having to, you know, practice the hard things daily to make sure that I stay healthy. And I've only been retired for one year, but this is how it looks. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely no shame in this. And getting the support that you need to leave is very much there. Like this is an understood issue that first responders face there is so much financial support out there for us to make that to help make that transition even easier because mm -hmm. it's so well documented that you know the impacts of trauma look like this and they can impact your life in this way absolutely and i'm i'm so grateful for the resources that we have and you know grateful for the um you know the groups that start from you know people like you and like me that want to continue to help people and to share our experiences and stuff. And I look at you, Nate, and I'm just, I'm, I'm so proud of you and you're so well-spoken and you're so put together and I feel like I'm all over the place. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into comparison mode because I can do that very easily, but I just, you know, it, it, 
I find it just so amazing that, you know, you have people that have been through so much, but they still want to give back and they still want to share their experience, you know, and hoping that if it helps one person, that's one person that, you know, knows again, like you're not alone. And is, you know, to realize that the strength of those words, um, you know, sometimes, like you say, you, you don't really get it until you get it, right? Thank you for the comment, um, making me tear up. I've been at this for a while now talking about my PTSD and it's been one of those things where I didn't recognize that when I first started this project that one, I would be able to give back to first responders, but two, it was going to be very much an ongoing group therapy for me. It would keep me talking about this stuff. And that is how we win the battle with PTSD. We just got to keep talking and keep letting it out. And that's as simple as it looks. And I mean, it's been a gift for me just to end up in this space because as I connect with beautiful people like yourself who are too on this journey, I'm taking care of myself too. Absolutely. Right. And you're going to walk away from this interview and you're going to be like, oh, it, this is perfect. You know, I feel so much lighter. I've gotten so much of this stuff out. And mm -hmm. it's when we, when we hold it in where the issues start to begin. Mm -hmm. So I thank you, you for the comment. I really do. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. No, that's okay. That's okay. You mentioned, keep going. No, you mentioned about, um, you know, I think it was giving back to other people or asking for help. And uh, you, you asked if I had difficulty asking for help, and I do. I have very much difficulty asking for help. But someone flipped it on me and they said, well, you want other people to ask you for help. Why not give those people the opportunity to help you? And it was just such a profound way of looking at things. Like, you know, I expect people to, to ask me, why should I not give them, them that opportunity? It's not something we're used to. No, we're not. <laughs> it's so, it's so hard to do. It's so hard to ask for help. It's not something that's celebrated yet. It still may be viewed as a sign of weakness, mm -hmm. but the, the post-traumatic growth. And I mean, this is where I love connecting with people in this space is yeah, they've gone through some hard times. They've gone through the trauma, you know, they've gone and done the things that they need to do. You're now in that post-traumatic growth. I know the future for you looks incredibly bright as you continue on this journey and you continue to move forward. And I've seen even in the, the short time frame that I've known you, the, the growth that you've exhibited and this desire to want to continue to push yourself and challenge yourself. And these are all phenomenal things. These, these things are the things that should be celebrated in PTSD because for many moments in PTSD, you feel completely worthless. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. Yeah. So yeah, today we celebrate you, Trina, for doing the hard work and thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifice. I will always say that to people who serve because you did. You knew not only served, but you sacrificed so much of yourself for your communities. And I want to thank you for everything you have done. And I thank you too, like I say, giving me the opportunity to speak, even though I feel like I'm juggling over my words and losing my train of thought. Like it means a lot to have this platform. And, you know, I, I absolutely give kudos to you for, for stepping out and, uh, you know, embracing this and just doing such a great job. Like it's, it's just been amazing to listen to you and, and to be on your journey with you. It's, it's absolutely, I appreciate being able to be here. Thank you. I couldn't do this alone. And it's one of those things too, like season one for me has been phenomenal because I've been able to talk about my story, but I'm starting to enjoy the project even more now because I'm connecting with people who are wanting to build on this and share their own story and help hopefully somebody who's that younger person, whether you're, you know, one to five years of service and you're just starting to see kind of your PTSD or you're just starting to see the changes that are happening within, you're having some of those issues or you're further along in the journey, whatever it is but we all have a story to tell. And when mm -hmm. we tell our story, we actually give back and we give back parts of our story to others so that they can see in themselves what that story looks like for themselves. And they now can build, okay, what does my story look like? If you're losing your way, you can find yourself again. 
So it's such a gift to be able to give back. Thank you, Trina, for being on here. Thank you for your courage, for walking through the difficulties of your journey and in talking very, uh, very openly about what it looked like. We applaud you and thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on season two. If you are a first responder with an incredible story into post-traumatic stress, please reach out and connect with myself. Season two is based on your story. And if you want to step up to the plate and share your story with the world, I would be more than honored to help you do that. Thank you for your continued support with this project. And thank you for tuning in today.